and welcome to something completely different. I am not James Waters, despite my uh, perfect impression of his introduction there. This is Joel Walsh. I produce and direct the episodes of The Basement Tapes, along with Gabby Corey Mead. But as James is currently moving house, he's moving into his granddad's old house, and so he has very kindly let me borrow the podcast for today to share with you a little bit of my own slightly basement tapey history. Uh, the producer's have very much taken over the asylum. So let me start the story for you. I was recently clearing out my childhood room and I found in my in my wardrobe a curious artifact. It was a blue ring file containing several sheets of script for a half-hour radio drama called Jilt Royal. Uh, my granddad, or Gramps as we always called him, uh, died when I was relatively young and through some twist of fate I ended up with this half-hour script that he had obviously written. It's got his name on the front and a return address to his house. Uh, just kind of stuffed in my wardrobe behind some figures. Um, so I've read through it, obviously, and the drama my gramps wrote is set in 1867 in Bavaria, obviously, and is all about King uh, Ludwig, or Ludwig II of Bavaria, eventually known as King Ludwig the Mad, but for now, just Ludwig, or probably Wiggly to his friends. Uh, the script is a sort of courtroom drama, comedy farce thing. Ludwig is engaged to be married to a young woman called Sophie, having sent her a formal letter of marriage proposal. The radio drama, which as far as I know was never performed, concerns the two of them meeting, Sophie and the King, and it transpires that the letter wasn't sent by Ludwig, but by his mother. She's kind of arranged it all behind their backs. Uh, so me and my co-producer Gabby have recorded some little snippets of Leslie's script, Leslie is my gramps, and you're going to be hearing them in between me talking about my granddad and grandma for a little bit. I'm going to kind of explore his life um, through his script. So without further ado, welcome to a very special two-parter to start series two of The Basement Tapes. This is The Wardrobe Files. I haven't done a lot of research for this, and some of it will probably be inaccurate or untrue, or maybe outright fantasy in places, but um, I'm aiming for the truth of childhood. You know, there's a way of writing this story where I, as an adult, could fact-check my memories of my dad, I could nail down dates or events, but that's not really what we're aiming for here. We're aiming to, through this snippet of my Gramps' writing, come to a kind of elemental understanding of how he saw his own life, or at least how my imagined childhood version of him saw his own imagined life. We are dealing with layers of abstraction, which I think is safest for everyone, uh, in terms of lawsuits and uh, awkward Christmases. Because I never got to know my granddad as an adult, so this is very much a child's view, looking up from his knees, never able to see eye to eye. The only concrete memory of my gramps that I have is of sitting at his knee in his house, which had the fantastic name Pookwell, or as we called it, Spookwell, in the Kentish countryside. And if I think back on that house, uh, it's always as a church. I live in York, home of York Minster, unsurprisingly, and in my mind that kind of great medieval cathedral and Pookwell, uh, my grandparents' quite large house, are all sort of mixed up. Uh, there's rectory corridors bleeding into the freezing guest bedrooms. Um, you know, Pookwell, or the version in my head, is all 
leaded single glazed windows so thin that they might as well be stained glass, its crumbling stonework and hard seats, and the most common factor between it and the York Minster is a sombre silence. Pookwell is the return address on Jilt Royal, the radio play my gramps wrote, which means I suppose that it was sent to at least one agent, though as I say, never performed. In my memory, I'm sat at the feet of a tubby, tweedy man who is quizzing me vigorously on the wildlife I saw on the walk through his woods that morning, more on the woods later. And it's an austere image for an austere man. Were my gramps a book, he would have been a leather-bound dictionary, stored on the highest shelf, not for small hands and too heavy to hold. Uh, he was incredibly intelligent, my gramps. Um, for example, when he finished university, he began teaching the very course he had graduated from. He spoke something crazy like five languages, and all that knowledge no doubt came from thick leather books, all neatly ordered in his home library. I doubt he would have approved of Duolingo. Um, because my gramps spent so much time with books and they meant so much to him, and in turn they mean so much to me, I'm just going to explore... Uh, his life a little bit through some of the books in his library. Um, for example, for fun, he read Sherlock Holmes, and after his death, I inherited his collection of the complete stories, and it was the first time I read them all, perhaps hoping to better understand uh, the man who had loved them so much. And I enjoy reading them, I still do, but back then, I found the cases comically impossible to solve. Holmes would use some innocuous piece of evidence to extrapolate a chain of events he couldn't possibly know had happened. He solved cases like we write stories, travelling from thread to thread, and daring you to call him out on a plot hole in his logic. One of the books I picked up from my gramps' library after he died was The Great Gatsby, uh, which I didn't think much of at the time, but fell in love with in my teenage years. Um, the titular Gatsby lives in this great rambling manor, a lot like my imagined Pookwell, and the great tragedy of Gatsby's life is that his home library is full of old books that are totally untouched. Uh, they are for display and to impress, and Gatsby has never touched them or read them himself, and that's this massive tragedy in his life. Um, I think the tragedy of my gramps' life is that he'd probably read them all. I think it's about time I brought my grandma into the tale. My grandma Audrey was austere too, but less because that was her nature, and more because it was his. She had driven ambulances in the war, or I should probably mention that may have been someone else in the family. Uh, she died a few years after my gramps, and when we cleared out her things, we found a few small medals she had received, um, but not for driving ambulances, hence my slight confusion, um, but for giving blood, actually. Uh, litres and litres of the stuff. I think, like most families, the achievements of our female relatives have slowly blurred through the lens of history into a hazy tale of acceptable heroism and of blood given up. I do know that her parents were steel workers, at a time when that didn't mean a handful of highly skilled engineers like it does today, but instead meant crusts of bread and a tin bath filled from the kettle on the hob. Or perhaps that was a story told to me about someone else in my family. Uh, I know some part of my family were miners in a pit somewhere in the north. I'm not sure it matters. Uh, either way, I imagine to my grandma, the university-educated Leslie looked like a lifeline. Um, I can only speculate what Audrey's parents must have thought. They died long before I was born, I've never seen a photo of them as far as I know, and when I try to imagine my great-grandma, 
are just see Audrey again. Um, perhaps they were really proud of the person their daughter was going to marry. Perhaps they definitely thought it was um, marrying up. I wonder if Leslie ever came round to visit her family, bookish and slight, the cleanliness of his nails alone acting as a sort of unconscious slight to her family. I wonder if they ever gathered round a three-legged table and drank tepid tea and laughed politely at jokes they didn't get. When I write you this part of the tale, the courtship, and I'm doing it now, I'm going to write Leslie as a bookish, bumbling figure in their house, unused to such a small space, forever nudging the corners of things he shouldn't with his body, a figure whose every move was unintended slight. I wonder if my grandma Audrey ever went to see Leslie and his parents, and in the intimidating silence of a parlour, the only sound the judgmental velvet swish of the pendulum on a grandfather clock. I might imagine Audrey wished for the crash and roar of a steel mill, or the screeching of an ambulance siren, the cataclysmic explosions of the blitz, or even just the feeling of a needle in the arm. I wonder if she tried to break it off, intimidated by a lifetime of silence rolling out in front of her. I wonder if her mother ever convinced her to stay. I wonder if secretive letters were sent, arranging it all around her without her knowledge, like a spider silently growing its web. I'm just guessing. I do know they ended up eloping to France in the end, and informed their friends at their union by postcard. I really wish I had one of these cards. I imagine they must have been a wonderful read. Dear John, in France with Audrey, having a lovely time. Wish you were here. P.S. Have married Audrey. P.P.S. The croissants are to die for. Uh, I think now is a good time for our first extract of Jilt Royal, the radio drama my granddad wrote. This is the moment Sophie discovers who really arranged her marriage to the King of Bavaria. to me. What I said, Sophie. I didn't propose to you. Don't talk nonsense, Ludwig. It's not five minutes since you told me the orchestra in the courtyard was rehearsing our wedding. We're due to marry not five weeks from now. The whole nation is agog for the day. How can you possibly pretend you didn't propose to me? Sophie, I know it must seem odd to you, but cast your mind back. Did I ever actually ask you to marry me? Uh, face to face, I mean. No, not face to face. But you did more than that. You proposed to me in writing. Didn't it ever strike you as curious that I should propose to you in a letter when you live not half an hour across the lake? No, not really. Why should it have seemed curious? Mama had already made an informal proposal on your behalf. Think back to that informal proposal of your mother's, Sophie. I suppose you remember who else was there? Of course I do. Your mother had come over to... Oh, God. Your mother! That's right, Sophie. My mother. What I'm thinking just isn't possible. I'm afraid it is, Sophie, dearest. You know my mother, and you know with her, anything is possible. Oh, God, your mother, indeed. As you may have deduced from just that tiny snippet, my gramps did not have an ear for dialogue. Even for courtiers in 1860s Bavaria, the talk is pretty stilted. They express their emotions as instruction manuals, and I suspect if he'd lived long enough for me to have a grown-up conversation with him, my gramps would have done that too. 
I imagine he was hard to live with. I don't actually know what my gramps did for a living, and like I said, I'm not going to research it for this story. I know it was something amorphously businessy. I have a vague feeling it had something to do with weapons, though again, that might be the imagination of a child. I know that when my dad was young, he was away on business trips a lot to foreign countries. I like to think when he went on one of these trips, you could find my grandma in the little bathroom that is right at the pinnacle of Pookwell, a sort of little tower, a steeple, balance between two chimneys. I like to imagine that the door is locked from the incursions of my dad and his two siblings, and she is smoking through the tiny open window beside a purple orchid. She's watching the fumes that we don't yet know are cancer-causing roll over the lawn and towards the woods, savouring the peace. Leslie and Audrey eventually found themselves at Pookwell, a rambling, red-brick pile, backing onto a stretch of woodland, more on the woods later. My grandma loved animals, and would adopt stray cats, great hissing beasts with foul tempers and razor-blade teeth who'd swish their tails like switchblades around skirting board corners. The fact my gramps was allergic to cats, I'm sure had no bearing on my grandma's ever-growing collection. Of this menagerie of cats, there are only two who stick in my mind. One is Panda, who I may or may not have met or just invented from family stories. In either case, she was the biggest cat I've ever seen. The second was Pushkin, a ball of loyal, doting, animal hatred, who stayed with my grandma right until she died. My grandma had found Pushkin in a barn, savaged by dogs. Well, that's what she said anyway. I suspect that Pushkin had been doing most of the savaging. In direct retaliation, my gramps got a guard dog, Misha, and each new visitor to the house had to be initiated to the house by my gramps. He would lead Misha out on a chain, she would sniff your hands front and back, and thereafter know not to tear your face off. My gramps would take Misha out on a walk through the woods until the old guard dog got dementia and attempted to charge my mother when she first came to visit my gramps and grandma. Misha roared down the gravel drive of Pookwell like a furry missile, spraying stones out behind her, and it was only the fast actions of my uncle in body-slamming the dog that saved my mother. Misha was put down. It was as warm a welcome as Pookwell ever gave. After Misha came the snake, who may or may not have been called Audrey, but perhaps I've forgotten her name, or never knew, or perhaps Gramps never named her. She was a python, ten feet of sinuous melted glass, and came back with my gramps after a business trip to Africa, another trinket to go on the mantle, alongside the Greek vases and Maori fertility statues. I suppose she, the snake, was supposed to see off the cats as Misha had done, and sometimes she'd be coiled around the banister rail that led upstairs to the guest bedrooms. Me and my brother would shiver at the bottom of the stairs, and not dare go up. In general, however, I think the Kentish countryside proved rather too cold for the python, and she spent almost all her time curled in a great heap in front of the arga, that's a sort of wood-burning stove that's always on, rotating her scales at a glacial pace to warm the blood vessels beneath. In winter, this was a firm favourite spot for the cats, too, and so they would rest together. Tail and whisker, all bundled up snugly beside scale and fang. The cats were far more aggressive than the snake, and I think the irony of this was probably lost on my gramps, who, as far as I know, had never been in the kitchen. Food was carried to the dining room through a hatch, though I sometimes suspected this was a dumb show put on for me and my parents when we visited. I suspect they did not often eat together, 
and I'm thankful that they went to that effort for us. Here's our second scene from Jilt Royal. This is from the middle of the drama. The king has asked Sophie to break off their engagement, which was arranged by his mother, and Sophie is refusing, presumably because she quite fancies being queen. A ton of stuff going on, right? Sophie, I don't know how to say this. I don't want to hurt you any more than I already have, you understand, but I have to tell you, I don't want to marry you. I never did want to marry you. I... I thought I'd made that clear. So you did, Ludwig. Crystal clear. But I still want to marry you. Sophie, listen, please listen. I've been weak. Unforgivably so. I admit it. But I will not be weak any longer. Our engagement is at an end. Ludwig, our marriage will simply become an arranged marriage. That's not so bad. In some countries, all marriages are arranged marriages. In practically all countries, royal marriages are arranged. Sophie, you don't seem to hear a single word I say. We can make a success of this, Ludwig. I promise I won't make any demands of you. There'll have to be sons, of course, for the succession, but apart from that, you'll be free to do exactly as you please. It was only after my gramps died the holes opened up. Literal ones in Pukwell's rolling lawn and in the wood, and others that went much deeper. The man who liked to think he needed a guard dog did not own a wood, it turned out. He was managing it for the UK government and was supposed to coppice it once every four years, which he did not bother to do. The man who would be king of Bavaria had debts to be settled too and books to be divided and junk to be sold and dues to pay. Somewhere in all that we found a collection of stories and I suppose at some point one of these collections ended up in my bedroom wardrobe at home which has long served as a sort of second attic for my family, because I don't own many clothes. I don't know where in Pukwell we found the manuscripts, but I'll practice a little artistic licence and say we found them locked in a bureau drawer with a silver key he kept almost shamefully hidden in an old wooden cigar box on the mantel. When me and Gabby produce the basement tapes, the audio quality is often poor on the original recordings, and we sometimes have to record over them with our best guess as to what the line is. That's what I'm trying to do here, recording over my own memories in a way that tells this story, this story which I suppose ends at me. I think the greatest shock in this whole tale is that my gramps was a storyteller, all in blue files neatly hidden away, he had radio dramas and Sherlock Holmes stories and often historical fiction. He didn't own a typewriter, and they would have all been written longhand in his study and sent to the village down the hill in brown parcel paper to be typed up. I know my gramps would have loved this image, because I love it now. It's certainly far more romantic than squinting at a laptop or sitting in a basement. And I never really thought of my gramps as being a man who thought very much about romance, at least in the conventional sense where another person has to be involved. One last note about clearing out Gramps' things, before I move on to what my grandma did after he died. One Mother's Day, my Gramps had given my grandma a purple orchid, which had sat for as long as I could remember in the tallest bathroom at the very summit of Pukwell, beside the tiny window. It was a sort of miracle orchid, unfazed by the icy Kent weather which so bothered its other tropical companion, the snake, and it had flourished and flowered year on year. It was only after he died and we began to clear out his things that we discovered the orchid was plastic. After he died, my grandma moved near to us and flourished herself. We dug her a pond deep enough to rival Graham Waters's, 
How should I say that? Oh, I'm confused by apostrophes, hang on. After he died, my grandma moved near to us and flourished herself. We dug her a pond deep enough to rival that of Graham Waters and continually worried she would topple into it. She developed an unhealthy online shopping addiction, tried to leave her open the wrong end of a laptop with a spoon, and once drank so much sherry that she began to slur her words. And when my aunt rang her that night, assumed she was having a stroke and called her an ambulance. From Glasgow. 300 miles away. I leave you with the very last lines of Jilt Royal. Sophie does indeed choose to jilt the King of Bavaria, hence the name, which for some reason infuriates him, despite him having asked for it earlier. I think the King of Bavaria just wants everything done on his terms. Or not at all. The King ends up arguing with a courtier, Eckerman. He has had a bust of Sophie made for their wedding, and he wishes to hurl it through a window, and Eckerman is trying to persuade him not to. And I like the final stage direction so much, I'm going to read that aloud too because I think it very neatly encapsulates the story I've been trying to tell. So we'll end with that stage direction. And here is the extract. God in heaven, Ackerman! Won't even my own secretary do as he's told? Give the bust to me, man! Give it to me! Now! Majesty, you mustn't do it. Please, you really mustn't. Mustn't, Ackerman? Mustn't? Who are you to tell me what I must or mustn't do? Move away from that window, man. Get out of my way. Get... Terracotta shatters. The wedding march continues, undisturbed for a second or two. Then wails raggedly to a halt. Thank you very much for listening. Just to keep you abreast of what's happening, next week is the second and final episode of The Wardrobe Files, where Gabby will be talking about her great-grandfather. Very excited for that. It's an excellent episode. And then after that, it is The Basement Tapes Series 2. James has been pretty under wraps about it all, uh, but he has finally sent us the tape for that first episode. It's already partially edited. James is a bit of an artist. He likes to get to the stories before we do. But look forward to that coming out soon. Should I do the thing? Gabby, should I do the thing? Do the thing. Go on louder for the mic. It's what the people want. Oh, well, everyone, sleep well. And I hope you have good dreams. Thank you.